I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. If you are an experienced, well-trained therapist with lived experience, whose clinical approach aligns with the values represented in these podcast episodes, or if you are seeking treatment, we would love to hear from you. Please go to our website, karenlewisedc.com forward slash apply. All right, everyone, here we go. My guest for today is Kate Kendall, and we have such a great conversation. We talk about yoga and eating disorders and how sometimes yoga instructors hide their eating disorder behind the actual image, and I have that in air quotes, of what we think a yogi is supposed to be like. We talk about the fact that it takes a village. You cannot do this in isolation. We need community in order to help us heal. And we talk about thinking outside of the box. Kate went through a lot of ways trying to find recovery, and it wasn't until she found 12-step that it actually worked for her. All right, everyone, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited for our guest, Kate Kendall. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have you. There's a lot to talk about. Um, And so I guess, as I always say, Kate, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, So where to start? I guess um, just the overview, I have been teaching and practicing yoga for many years, over two decades, and I love it. I still love it. I still feel like if I wasn't able to teach a yoga class ever again, my heart would break. It's that way I feel like I'm of service and that I feel completely present when I do it. Uh, And I also run a yoga and fitness business that I co-founded 10 years ago. This is our 10th year in business. And so besides running that and managing a yoga schedule and and, um, keeping our yoga teachers inspired and the community inspired, um, I love writing. I've written a book. The book is called uh, uh, Life in Flow. And I'm really excited about writing another book really soon probably actually related to a lot of the things that we'll talk about today so that's just an an overview I'm also a mama to a four-year-old Alice and um, I live in beautiful Bronte Beach in Sydney so that's the top level overview of of Kate Kendall. (laughs) 
It's fantastic. I love it. And, and, you know, we, we had to navigate many different time zones to do this. So I want to thank you. And, and I hope all the listeners know that. So Kate, I really would like to start with the fact that you struggled for 27 years with your eating disorder. Um, I'm wondering if you could share just a little bit about what sort of went into the eating disorder, why it stayed with you so long, and then I want to get to the incorporation of yoga and eating disorders. So can you start there? Yeah. So my eating disorder started when I was in high school, sort of year eight, year nine, and I grew up in a really small country town in southern New South Wales on an apple farm, a place called Batlow, famous for apples. Had a great upbringing, um, but the schools there, there weren't many schools and it was it's very small population. So, you know, parents sacrificed a lot to send me off to boarding school and I was really excited about this idea of going to boarding school. My older sister was there and loved it. Still love all the girls that I went there with. They're like my sisters to this day. I might not see them for a couple of years at a time, but they're still like my sisters. Uh, But something happened around the end of year eight. And one of my best friends who I just became so, I was just so, uh, I admired her, you know, and to the point probably at that young and vulnerable age where I put her on a pedestal. And she had to leave the school and it really affected me. And I didn't talk to anyone about it. Uh, I didn't have the tools to cope with this sudden loss of a best friend that was always there, who I really admired, who I spent, you know, all my moments with at school. And I guess I internalized it and I thought I'm going to be the special one now. I'm going to be the replacement for my friend and so I thought the best way for me to do that was to go on a diet and I stopped you know I just started to start with the small things I was a little more rigid and before I knew it I um yeah I was addicted I was addicted to this feeling of controlling uh, my body weight and shape and yet yeah, spiraled out of control. I just, I couldn't stop. And there was an intervention with my mum. She came up from the country, which I knew wasn't just coming to take me out, uh, out for afternoon tea, seeing as she lived five hours away. And so I was taken off and diagnosed. And um, because I was at boarding school, I look back now and realise because I was at boarding school, I had so many people watching me, which is great. You know, it was run by nuns. So I had nuns watching me. I had all my friends watching me. Um, so I felt this pressure to start eating again, which I did, but then it turned, that's when I started to purge. So that's when the bulimia started for me. And really from that point on, and I guess back then, yeah, there was, I had a couple of therapy sessions, but I probably just gave off this air of I'm okay now. And, you know, I was starting to change physically again and put on weight. Uh, but I kept the bulimia a secret, as we often do. And uh, so, yeah, that secret, I still remember the first time it happened and it, it just lingered and it stayed with me. So over the course of the next 27 years, I went into, I was either in a state of binge purging, restricting both one at a time, you know, and that was just weaving its way through my life. And I guess it was how I was coping 
with um, not only what had happened with my friend, which in hindsight, you know, it's not that big a deal, but for me at the time it was, and it just became my coping mechanism for everything. Uh, so that, yeah, that's how it started and and how it lingered and stayed with me for a very, very long time. You know, it's so interesting because we often talk about, or I often talk about um, when people go through little traumas, you know, there's big trauma and little trauma. A little trauma for you was the loss of your best friend and not articulating it and the impact that it had on you. Because little traumas are not things that we think are going to cause a massive impact, addiction, you know, eating disorder, whatnot. So people don't know to really say, Kate, are you okay? And you as a young child or eighth grader, probably didn't have the voice yet to say, I feel totally lost without my best friend. Yet you walked through the world as if nothing was happening. In fact, you just tried to overcompensate and say, well, what can I do to make myself appear better? And that's, that's a, that's a foundational trauma that sort of puts you on this path. Now, it also sounds like the path went in and out because of restricting, there was binging and purging, and then there would be more restricting. And so we often see that cycle very, very frequently. Talk a little bit about the shame of the binging and purging, because that's where you said there was shame. Mm. Yeah, you know, the shame, it is what kept me trapped. It's what it's what kept the secret soul alive. And even to the point when I started to have therapy again, when I later went to university, I didn't even tell my therapist about it. The shame, like I was happy to talk about the restriction, but the shame around the binge purging was so, I had such a strong hold on me by that stage. Um, it just didn't want me to talk about it because it, it knew, I know now, it knew that if I talked about it, it would start to set me free. So, yeah, that shame, I just wouldn't wish it upon anybody. And it it's, I guess it's also the kind of shame that kept me in such denial and not just within my eating disorder, but in so many areas of my life. Denial in terms of my feeling, denial in terms of, you know, this job over here isn't right for me, but I'm going to deny it. I'm going to keep going on with it. I'm just going to keep soldiering on. I'm just going to keep coping the way that I have. So really that, that denial and that shame just kept showing up for me in every part of my life. And it wasn't until many years later when I started. And, and as the years went on, you know, from about university onwards and as I was in relationships and long-term relationships, and living with partners, I eventually, and gosh, wow, I must be the best secret keeper as a lot of people with the same eating disorder. Yeah, oh, we're great secret keepers. <laughs> you can count on that. It, you, you know, the wheels started to fall off. And I would, I remember the first time I told um, a boyfriend and just the lead up to it and the guilt and the shame in telling him. And then when I told him, it was like, oh, 
okay, well, let's just get you some help. And it was like, he was like, let's just, you know, it was nothing, but I built it up. And that is, and that highlights another point that so much of what happens for us when we have eating disorders is that we build so much of it up in our, in our mind <laughs> and, you know, it's all in the mind. And, and until we let it out, until we journal how we're feeling, verbalize how we're feeling, connect with others who have the same um, disorders, it's not until then that it's able to be expressed and released and little by little we start to heal. So, yeah, the shame, just to round that off, was was like a prison. But in a way, I don't, I don't, I don't regret it because it's turning out to be, you know, I heard what someone say once, your, your message is in your mess. And I really do believe that the further down the recovery journey that I go, which I'm so grateful for, there's not a day that I wake up and then not, I don't, I don't feel grateful for the fact that I can eat three meals a day and snacks and not have the head noise eat my meals and feel like I'm a child again and really enjoying food like I used to before the eating disorder. So I don't regret it. And that sounds strange because it put me through so much turmoil. But I know that it's giving me this ability to relate to others and, and help others in any way that I can through what I do every day, which is teach yoga and meditation and write. So yeah, I don't regret it. But I, if I can help others not have that shame, then I will. You know, regret is not an emotion that or a feeling that helps us move forward. It keeps us stuck in shame. And well, there are times when we have regret if we can if we can use that. Like, what do you want to do with that? And the reality is, Kate, we can't take back those 27 years. So living in regret is still living in the past in your eating disorder. And you chose to say, what do I want to do with it? What do I want to do with the experiences that I've had who have made me the person I am in this moment? And that's a powerful, that's, a, that's, that's, what did you say? Making, make, making a message of the mess. That's, mm -hmm. and, and I've said this before, it is not necessary for everybody who's had an eating disorder to disorder to turn around and do something in the field or something to help others and be of service. That's not necessary. And still, what do you want to do with it? Do you still, have you, have we learned to live our best lives, no matter how that looks? And sometimes that even that is uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Um, just when you're saying it and then turning it around, I also, I feel called to say that the the catalyst and the real turning point for me was um, so I really only started surrendering and starting my recovery journey at the very beginning of of COVID. So so yeah, I'm really only two two and a half sort of years into it. Um, but what started it for me which again, I'm grateful for every day. I just remember looking at my daughter 
one day and just with a lot of head noise going on and thinking, what am I modeling for her? And that was also part of the eating disorder, the perfectionist in me, the, it comes up a lot in my parenting and it still does. It's this, am I giving her her hangups? Am I doing it right? Is she going to be okay? What am I modeling for her? And, and, and so I really thought in that moment, I need to make a change because I want to be part of a movement in this country and, and everywhere. And, you know, you're doing it. There's so many incredible people at the moment who are, who have begun already and, is, and, and are still starting this uh, movement around body image and the mind and just speaking truth. I want to model something different for her and for her friends. So that was the big catalyst for me. And I don't know if I didn't have her, I, I don't know if I'd still be in my eating disorder. So I'm grateful for that. And on that whole movement piece, you'll be really pleased to hear actually. So on Australia Day every year, we vote in, the nation votes in and yeah, an Australian of the year. And they're generally someone who is doing incredible work in the country, for the country. And this year was a woman called Taryn Brumfit. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, um, but she's been working tirelessly. I've been following her for some time on body image. And it's the really the first time that someone who's doing that kind of work has been nominated. And yeah, it was actually a really emotional day for me. I don't know her, um, but it just felt like, yes, you know, this is great. This is an amazing step forward. Things are changing. It's happening slowly, but it's happening. I, I want to point out that I do think we are moving in the right direction. I do think that is incredible that that honor, she was voted for that honor. The fact that we're coming to a, a, a time in our lives where we're dismantling the myths of eating disorders and what a body is supposed to look like and also understanding the toxicity it has done to the world is amazing. And I love that that has happened in Australia. One of the things that I also know, along with the motivation of your precious soul daughter, is that you utilized the 12-step program to help you get through your recovery. And what I want to say, and I, I, I want to say this with all the heart in the world, there is some controversy over that. And Kate, please do not, please like know how much I'm, I'm like holding love for you right now. So this, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up is because if it works, it works for you. And so I hope you're okay that I said it like that. Um, you know, there, there are reasons that there's controversies about, you know, eliminating foods and whatnot. So I just wanted to explain a little bit. And what I'm noticing is I'm sitting across from this incredible, incredible soul that tried it and it, and it seemed to resonate with you. Can you share how that worked for you? Because I love that it did. Mm. And, you know, I had the same reservations, Karen, someone, one of my closest friends who's been with me a lot of the time through 
the eating disorder and supporting me. Her husband um, was a recover, recovering drug addict for, for many years. He's been sober using 12 steps. And I just always had this, like, you know, I'm not an addict. I'm, I don't need that. It was almost a little bit of I'm too good for that. <clears throat> and in a moment of desperation, I jumped on a call on Zoom. <clears throat> and I felt from that very first session, like my true recovery that I tried many times before had really started because for the first time, and I believe you can get this feeling out of 12 steps and in other groups, but for me, the key was relating to other people who were doing the same weird things with food and behaviors. And all of a sudden I was like, I, and this is big. I just want this to hit home because as I say, you can find this environment outside of 12 steps. I felt for the first time in my eating disorder that I could relate to others and that I could share the shame and no one was trying to fix me. I just shared, I listened and it was medicine. It was medicine. And I guess I just started to, you know, the first thing I had to do with meal was meal support. So for me, there was no elimination of any food. It was more just someone had to bring me my meals, had to prepare every single meal for me following a dietitian's plan. And so my partner had to serve me meals. So for anyone else, they would be like cheering. Awesome. Don't have to worry about meals. Someone's going to, but, but, but for me, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. When someone would put in front of me a bowl of spaghetti and meatballs, it was terrifying. I thought it was going to implode. But slowly and surely, and, you know, I've never had, I thought I had a great relationship with a higher power, you know, just from being in yoga and meditation. But um, but I hadn't, I'd never really surrendered. It was always on my terms. So I guess everyone, everyone finds their own version of that. But for me, it was in really the medicine was in sharing the shame and in surrendering and surrendering to others' help. And again, you can get both of those things outside a 12-step program. So for me, those key things were the group, being able to relate, sharing my shame. Every time I talk about it, it would get less and less. And, um, and just learning how to eat again, um, using the help of someone else. I also want to point out there's another component in there that you did not include, which is your, I'm going to use the word dedication to finding something to work for you. I heard you say, I tried so many other things. Gratefully, we are now thinking outside of the box because it is not a, a formula that fits everyone. And when I say it, I mean like there, there are certain, there are therapeutic models that just don't resonate with people. And you were not willing to give up and you thought outside of the box and you found something that did. And I didn't want that to go unnoticed because it wasn't just the participants. It wasn't just the model. It was your persistence to say to yourself, I haven't found it yet and I'm going to keep searching until I do. And that's pretty powerful, Kate. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was out of desperation. It was out of desperation. And I think something that you and I chatted about was um, this feels relevant to share as well for anyone who might be in a similar situation to me who might have a career in health and well-being. I think the other thing that kept me in my shame and kept me from talking about it was that is my job. And as incredible as it is, as beautiful as it is, and I'm so grateful again that I get to share this gift, um, it kept me hiding from coming out and talking about my eating disorder. You know, I kept it a secret for so long because I was hiding behind this perfect image of what it is to be well, how it is to be healthy, you know, always choosing the healthy option because I'm a, I, because I should, and because I'm a yogi, you know, and that, that wasn't in inverted commas healthy. There was nothing healthy about it. It was, I wasn't in freedom. I was not in a state of freedom. I was locked in the shame. So yeah, I just feel called to say that in case, and I know there are so many other yogis, fitness uh, trainers who are in their eating disorder and are too ashamed to talk about it for fear of what that means about their image in that career. And if I just put a bow on that, it might feel so scary to talk about it. It might feel like there's no way you could do it. That would just mean the end of everything. You'd have to have a career change. You'd have to go and hide it is only going to expand you. It is only going to make you a more authentic, honest, relatable human being. So don't hesitate. <laughs> well, I was about to ask you, how was it received? And it sounds like it was received almost with a sigh of relief from others that that no longer had to pretend. If, if that, if that makes sense, like what, you know what I'm saying? Like suddenly, like the fact that people were like, oh, means definitely you were not alone in this. Why do you think in the yoga community, there would be, there is this image of what a yogi is supposed, supposed to, and I'm putting that in air quotes, because that is not accurate. No one is supposed to look like anything. But there is this idea of what a yogi is supposed to look like, how they're supposed to be free of all stressors because they meditate and they teach yoga and and they eat certain things. Like there is something that an image that comes to people's mind when you say yoga. And why do you think that that, that still has such a hold, that image? if you feel like you can speak to that. Yeah. What I what I see when you say that is I see yoga in its essence in its essence. And then I see separate to that this our westernized culture and body image and how we should look and yeah, that polished, healthy, again in air quotes looking person. And yoga is not that. Yoga is unity. Yoga is acceptance. Yoga is so far removed from this thing that we've associated with it, attached to it. So they're just completely different. But unfortunately, you know, we've taken yoga in the West 
thankfully, this medicine, energy medicine, this practice that makes us feel strong and can help us stand taller and more sure of ourselves. I remember when I first started practicing yoga, the one of the first things I remember noticing the most was I'd sweat the small stuff left. So all these benefits, all this mental clarity you can get from it. And somehow we have associated it with the construct of what it is to look like a model in a magazine. You know, it's just, they're so, they're so far away from each other. And I don't know how we got to that point other than that's all, that's the only way I can explain it. But I think the more that we're evolving and the more that body image is coming into everyone's and awareness and dare I say it, the rise of the feminine and women stepping into their power and men stepping into their power, the more truth that we're seeing and the more that's just going to dissolve. I can feel it. I can see it. I can see it in our yoga community here. It's all that you can be is honest, truthful, honest about your so-called mistakes and life experiences. And that's what makes you a yogi and the willingness to come back and to try again and the willingness to stay aligned in union with yoga, yoke with the present moment. That is yoga in its simplest of forms. Like, You're a yogi right now, Karen, because you're listening to me, you're present, you're you're with me. You know, I don't even know if you've practiced yoga ever or if you've done it, but you're a yogi right now because you're practicing presence. And that's a yogi. That's it. (laughs) You know, I have practiced yoga. And um, first of all, I also want to say thank you for saying that because that felt really lovely to me to be acknowledged for being present, being in this conversation with you. Like there's so many things that we just don't say to people. Like, thank you for being present. Thank you for letting me feel heard and understood. Um, And unfortunately, the yoga that I knew was very, very Western yoga, uh, very Westernized. And I I don't feel like I've ever truly done a healing yoga practice. I don't feel like I've ever truly done a yoga to actually calm my nervous system down, bring me clarity, bring my breath. You, do you know what I'm saying? I I I unfortunately have been exposed to very westernized yoga. I remember years ago I did Bikram yoga. No offense, but that's not really yoga. That's also why when clients say to me, oh, no, 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 I don't exercise. I just do. I just, and forgive me, that was not the right way of saying it, but it's not exercise. I do yoga. And I say, oh, great. What kind of yoga? And they're like, uh, I'm like, is it hot yoga? Is it 90 minutes in a room that's 106 degrees? That's that's really hard on the body. By the way, please hear me. I'm not, I do not want to dismantle all forms of yoga, but when you're, when you're looking at it through the lens of eating disorders, that's where I'd like to go. So looking at it through the lens of an eating disorder, this is where I go. So again, and I hope I didn't offend anybody. And Kate, tell me if I did, like, am I going to get listeners like up in arms being like, wait a minute, because it's never my intention. And I will say, 
my outlook and my perspective is viewed through the lens of an eating disorder therapist. And so that's where my comments come from. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. I do. I think it's a great, it's a very relevant point that you've brought up and something I didn't talk to before is with the whole westernized, it has become so physical, of course. We've made it, turned it into this very physical thing. Um, what's bringing music to my ears at the moment at our studio is that clients, the community, they're wanting the slower, the more yin-like practices. And that makes me so happy because it's 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 a return to self. It's taking it out of the physical because they do plenty of physical stuff outside of what they're doing in the yoga room at my studio. And so for them to be able to come and to slow down and to lean into what it really is to be yoga, to practice presence, to listen, actually notice their thoughts and be able to step back from them, that's the key. So you make a really good point, especially through the lens of eating disorders. And when I was starting out in my recovery, um, I really tapered back and I only did the restorative practices because I had to be so honest with myself. Why am I practicing today? Am I practicing because I haven't done anything for a few days and I want to stay toned and I want to look good? Or am I practicing because I want to soothe myself, because I want to come back to myself, because I want to stay on top of my recovery? So, yeah, really tapered off. And so for anyone who is recovering, I would really suggest those more contemplative um, introverted, slower moving, restorative practices are just, they can be really beneficial, really healing. So yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. There's, there's still a lot of um, the focus on the physical, but again, it's slowly changing. You know, it just dawned on me too, that for the period that I was doing Bikram yoga, I always got very emotional at the end in Shavasana. Like I would get tears in my eyes. I would feel my back on the floor. I would feel my hands on the floor. And I'm recognizing or I'm wondering now if those tears were, that was my true yoga practice, not the hard, you know, uh, poses that, that were, were taxing on my body, but the, the Shavasana. And that's when I came into myself. I don't, I, that just, that just sort of came to my mind. So. But Shavasana is a great play. You, I, I see a lot of tears happen in Shavasana. I think it's a combination of aligning our body in a certain way and energy moving in a certain way, as well as the breathing. That's just another thing that I teach a lot of breath work and the breath, our lungs are so powerful. The breath work is like a delivery system for a lot of people and their emotions. And so the breath, especially certain techniques, it will deliver emotions that you can't necessarily feel that you shove down, that you put away for later. I can't deal with that now. The breath, bring it's a delivery. So we're beating yoga or some of the more intense breath work sessions. So powerful for those of us who feel like we can't get to the source of those feelings, who feel like we can't talk. Um, yeah, breath work and yoga can be really medicinal. Mm -hmm. We're getting, we're going to have to start closing up, but before we do, I wanted to talk about one more thing, because you and I had talked about this before the recording started, and we have very similar thoughts on this, 
and and it's a little bit of a hard turn, but it's actually not because it reminds me of the yoga community, which is community. You had said in in a, in a podcast that I heard you on that it takes a village. Community is what helped you through the process because eating disorders we are we are organically in isolation. And it is almost like community is the opposite of what the eating disorder wants. So can you share a little bit about how community and the village supported you and how that helped? Once I got real about it, once I got honest about it, you're right. It's like community is the antidote, isn't it? And I would always, and I do still feel like I'm quite introverted and I've come to realize that and respect that and honor that and know that I actually do need times throughout my day that are my anchor points, my meditation, um, to be still and quiet. Otherwise, I know that I don't function as well. So that's a non-negotiable. But I also know when I'm taking that too far and when I am keeping myself from people um, and to a point where it's not healthy. So, yeah, it's the antidote and, and sharing and being able to relate to others. And it's all in the support letting other people support you is everything it really is everything and I can't stress that enough and I'm so glad you brought that up again because we are designed as human beings to be supported and to connect with other people you know our chemistry relies on it on you know those bonding chemicals um, hormones and yeah, I just believe it's such a big part in in my recovery and I'm sure so many others. You know, to reach out, talk, share. And what listeners have no idea what's happening right now is you are supporting a four-year-old precious little soul that just came to sit on your lap. She has a little earache and I have the fortune of of seeing seeing this mother bond experience right now. So I just wanted to point that out for listeners who did not, who do not have privy to what I see right now. So mm, it's a gift. <laughs> it's, it's a gift. Yes. Yeah. The bond the two of you have looks like a gift. Hey, I can't thank you enough for being on the, on the podcast. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share or talk about before we end? I feel like we covered a lot. Um, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. And Karen, thank you so much for um, having me on. And I'll continue to listen and continue to heal and grow. And yeah, just grateful. And the, the last little advice I would give to anyone listening who needs to help is share, 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 talk, 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 and keep listening. <laughs> Wonderful listening to the podcast for the guests that are on and listening to self and paying attention. So, all right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, 
listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.